in a world where most people watch movies and then forget about them. Three brave heroes join forces to watch them again and then talk about them. Join them in their epic journey as they go back in time, a decade and beyond, to revisit and break down films from a vast array of genres. Do these movies hold up over time? Are they classics? Find out on Retro Movie Roundtable. Starring your hosts, Brian Fry, Chad Robinson, and Russell Guest. Coming now to Headphones in Your Ears. Hello, all you lords, ladies, and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable. Welcome to the show where we watch movies and then talk about them. I'm your host, Russell Guest, and joining me today is my good friend and co-host, Brian Fry. Morning, everybody. Morning for me. That's right. Brian peeled himself out of bed to, to do this on a weekend morning. That's unusual. We got to get you some Red Bull, Brian. You got to you got to open your eyes up, man. Oh, no. I, uh, I'm i a strict uh, coffee person. Got a pot going first thing. <laughs> well, we need someone in here with us who eats, sleeps, and breathes movies. And I hear that guy is Greg and Cardona. How you doing, sir? I am doing pretty well. I am, obviously, Greg and Cardona. Born and raised in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, but I'm currently living in Erie, PA, working as a software engineer. I'm also working as a software engineer and co-founder of a startup company called Olympia Technologies, and we currently have an app in the App Store called Hippo. It's a bar and restaurant specials app. It's pretty successful in Erie right now, and we'll be expanding to Pittsburgh here shortly. I'm excited about that. I like it. Get the Hippo app if you're hungry. Yeah, right on. Find your watering hole. Hippo. Greg, you have like the coolest like like last night like in Cardone. Like it sounds like you're either like a BMX biker or like maybe like a stage name for like a rock star. Like it's a Sicilian last name. It's in Cardona. Pretty Italian family. Spaghetti on Sundays. It sounded too cool. I figured it had to be made up, but it's real. So, what is your guilty pleasure movie that you probably shouldn't like? What you do guilty pleasure movie for me would probably be the spectacular now it's kind of a chick flick movie but I've, i kind of relate to some of it so i liked the movie a lot all right what is your favorite on-screen fight scene like do you like reenact this thing in your living room and like uh, when no one's around reenacting not just this fight scene but probably multiple fight scenes i definitely do that in my living room when no one's around maybe when a few people might be around and just embarrassingly see me thinking of my favorite on-screen fight scene is pretty hard because i'm really into fighting and i'd probably have to pick never back down just because it's older it's classic mixed martial arts i like the scene where they fight in the street at the end of the movie it's like a sort of realistic and there's a lot of jujitsu and wrestling techniques that I actually have practiced growing up. So it's cool watching that on the screen. Nice. What movie do you get the most choked up from? I will say that I've I watched The Lion King recently and Mufasa dying was got me pretty choked up. I can't really pinpoint what exactly movie gets me the most choked up, but I'm probably I choke up pretty easily, honestly. So I get made fun of for that by my friends a little bit. Yeah. And what about you, Brian? What, what pulls those tears out of your eyes? I would say the last time that I really got like devastated in a movie was the end of the uh, Jude Law movie Big Fish. Oh yeah. Yeah, the end of that movie just just wrecked me. That's a good choice. Or Marley and Me. I, I feel really shanghaied into seeing that movie. If I had known the ending of that, I would not have watched it. So yeah, I'd say either Big Fish or Marley and Me. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. Toy Story Three just pulls at my heartstrings. <laughs> that one. That that one's probably mine. Toy Story Three. Yeah, right. Toy Story Three. Yeah, it's something about animals and something about just like the movies from childhood that kind of tug at the heartstrings. I feel like for me, 
my mom owns a dog grooming shop, so I would agree that Marley and me was a tough one. But you're always more hurt when an animal gets injured than a human. For sure. So, Brian, what movie are we going to do today? We've got Christopher Nolan's The Prestige. This movie comes out in 2006. It grosses $53 million. It places in the box office at 61st on the year. Not super high, but also not too shabby. It comes in just behind Final Destination 3 and ahead of The Lake House. The number one movie that year is Pirates of the Caribbean, The Dead Man's Chest. Uh, This movie is better than that movie. Um... (laughs) IMDb rating gives this an 8.5, and the critics of Rotten Tomatoes give this a 76, but the audience, far more fond of it on Rotten Tomatoes, they give it a 92%. So with that, Greg, had you seen The Prestige before? What was your background with this movie? So I have, I've seen it probably a dozen or more times. It's one of my favorite movies. Definitely a large Christopher Nolan fanatics lot of his films. Uh, I saw it in theaters when it originally came out. I think I was like a little younger. It came out 06. So yeah, I was early high school, if not middle school. And I wasn't probably not as in tune with these twists and turns. I was there more for like the magicians and like I was into magic tricks at that time in my life. So I didn't have much of an expectation about the twists and turns. And over time, as I've seen it being older, I appreciate it for different reasons. So it's a great movie. So you mentioned you were enthusiastic about magicians. Do you have any magic tricks yourself? I do. Uh, if you have a deck of cards, I could show you some at Gannon. I actually want a talent show doing magic tricks. Some basic ones like a torn and restored newspaper. Some mind reading. I'm doing air quotes here if you can't see through, through the microphone. Any bullet catches? <laughs> no bullet catches. Okay. Uh, no transporting men. So. How does he do it? Brian, what about you? Had you seen The Prestige before? And if so, what was your background on that one? It was a uh, casual watch. Uh, I probably own this movie. I ended up watching it on on HBO Go just for convenience, but I'm pretty sure I have this stored away somewhere. This was one of those kind of dual movies back in the day where one movie would come out and one not so dissimilar from it would also come out. So this one was tag-teamed with 2006's The Illusionist, which I also really enjoyed. So it was just kind of a buy-one-get-one-free sort of entertainment package on Magic that year. And what was it like returning back to it now? Oh, still good. Um, I've probably watched this half dozen times. One of those things you kind of come back to or you see it on something and you're like, yeah, I'll watch that. For me, I saw it when it hit the rental stores at the time. And uh, so the, probably 2007 or something like that, probably by the time I got to it. I, I enjoyed this. I think the fact that it wasn't a feel-good movie maybe uh, didn't go down for me as well. I wasn't aware of what I was getting in for. And so... I left with middling results. I also saw The Illusionist later that year, and I liked this much better than The Illusionist. I came back to it. Now, I had not seen it anywhere in between, though, so this has been, you know, 10 years plus. And I liked it a lot more now. I think it helped knowing that this was not going to happen. I, I kind of knew it was going to happen in the end, so I was prepared for that. I, I And knowing that made me appreciate the twists, the turns, and all the stuff that you go through oh, yeah. uh, in, in between better. And I also perhaps watch movies a little differently now than I watched them then, and I appreciated the craft and the storytelling and this more than I had at the time. I was definitely taken for the ride that you're supposed to be taken for then, but I appreciated it far more now. Greg, do you think it's holding up well so far? Yeah, I think it holds up really well. It's one of those movies that you get to the last scene the first time you watch it, and you're almost like, I definitely need to watch that movie again. So I think it has a high rewatch value. I mean, everybody, I kind of push this movie on people being that I'm a big Christopher Nolan fan and being that I'm partial to like the magicians just really like this movie. I haven't 
gotten too many people that have given me negative reviews after I've made them watch it. And that's true. It does do well for a second pass. Uh, There's a lot of attention to detail that you would not appreciate upon going through it the first time. Yeah, even just this past week, I've said I've watched it probably a dozen times in this past week, really paying attention, knowing I was going to be talking about it. There are things that I didn't notice before that I was really like drawing parallels or metaphors between, and it's a really great movie. We want to talk about this more in depth, so we're going to have to spoil this movie. So this is your spoiler warner. We'll be back here after these messages. Hello, I am Dr. Hugo von Schlugerman, number one ranked hypnotist and psychologist in all of GLOBE. Do you hear that, father? I am ranked number one. Maybe now you'll love me like my older brother, Otto von Schlugerman. Mr. Fancy Pants and his three Nobel Prizes. Calm down, Hugo. Calm down. Anyway, I am here to help you. I want you to relax. Good. Now you're getting very tired. And when I snap my fingers, you are now under my suggestion. You will now blink your eyes. And that means I have full control of your thoughts. You will do anything I say. I want you to go to iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast, and subscribe to the Retro Movie Roundtable. Give the show a five-star review and comment. This comment will help others discover what you already know in your subconscious, that the Retro Movie Roundtable is the greatest podcast ever produced. Share the show with your movie-loving friends, and like the show on Facebook, and email John Russell and Brian at RetroMovieRoundtable at Yahoo.com. Good. All right, we're back, and we're going to spoil this movie, as mentioned before, Greg, for people who haven't seen this movie since 2006, why don't you refresh people with what happens in The Prestige? As The Prestige begins, we are met with a shot of many identical top hats across the ground, and we hear the voice of Alfred Borden ask if we are watching closely. We then see John Cutter, an engineer or designer of illusions, explaining what an illusion is to a little girl. He explains how the illusion requires three parts. The pledge, where the audience is presented with something ordinary, the turn where the object is turned into something extraordinary, and the prestige where the object is brought back. From there, we see Alfred Borden on trial for the murder of Robert Angier. Angier was drowned in a tank of water beneath the stage at his performance. From his prison cell, Borden is approached by a solicitor. He mentions a mysterious man named Lord Caldlow. Lord Caldlow tries to buy Borden's most successful illusion, the transported man, but Borden just will not sell it. Coldlow's man gives Borden Angier's journal as a showing of good faith and leaves. Borden reads Angier's journal and recalls the events that have led up to Angier's death. Borden and Angier worked together closely as young magicians learning the trade, and they worked with Cutter, who we saw, explaining what an illusion was as well as on trial for um, testifying on Borden's trial. During a show together, Borden ties Julia's the magician's assistant in the show, knots, and she's dropped in a tank of water, which she then escapes from. This tank of water will later be what she uh, tragically drowns in, as Angier has to watch who we find out is his wife drown in front of him. Angier becomes obsessed with exacting revenge on Borden and views Borden as indifferent for Julia's death. Meanwhile, Borden meets Sarah and falls in love and starts a solo career with his mysterious engineer Fallon. Angier exacts his first revenge on Borden by slipping a live bullet into a pistol during Borden's magician show while he is performing a bullet catch, and Angier shoots Borden in the hand, taking off multiple of his fingers. Angier continues to work with Cutter and gains the help of a new distracting 
stagehand, Olivia. His career seems to take off. He has a good show, a great theater. But Borden comes back to get his own revenge and sabotages one of Angier's illusions, which ends up injuring an audience member and costing Angier not only his reputation, but his spot in the theater. Eventually, Borden marries Sarah, gains success with the illusion, the transported man. His illusion is mysterious, the best trick Angier's ever seen, and no one can seem to figure out how he has done it. Andrew becomes obsessed with the trick. Seems to be all he can focus on, even at one point forgetting the loss of his wife. At this point, Angier actually asks his assistant, who seems to make his show successful, to go and work for Borden, spy on him, and steal his trick. Olivia goes to work for Borden, but ends up falling in love with Borden, and double-crosses Angier. She gives Angier a, a trick journal from Borden, which she then sends him to Colorado, where he's on an adventure to find the secrets of Borden's tricks. His trick secret seems to be Nikola Tesla has created him a machine that will allow him to transport from one place to another. If Angier were to get this trick, he would be able to use his trademark showmanship to ruin Borden and create the best show that any magician has ever seen. Upon receiving the machine, Tesla gives Angier a warning not to accept the machine, but rather to destroy it. But his obsession is too great, and he instead decides to create a show revolving around the machine. We see Sarah growing unhappy with her marriage with Borden, finding that he seemingly has a dual personality loving her one day and not the next day, and that he may be potentially having an affair with Olivia. This is more than she can handle, and she hangs herself in Borden's shop, leaving Borden alone with her daughter, Jess. One night during Angier's comeback show, Borden now becomes obsessed with figuring out Angie's trick, and actually sneaks behind stage. We see Angier fall through a trapdoor on the stage into a water tank, and Borden watches him drown, trying to break the tank open, but fails, and Cutter comes downstage to see Borden watching Angier drown. We are then met with the trial from the beginning of the movie, where we see Borden convicted of murder of Robert Angier. Borden is convicted of the murder of uh, Robert Angier, and he will be in jail until he is brought to the gallows for his hanging. We then see the solicitor return to collect the magic tricks that he had tried to buy at the beginning of the show from Borden. Borden proceeds to give him all of the tricks, including the transported man, but he is only given the pledge and the turn of each trick and requires to see his daughter and say goodbye before he would give the uh, prestige for the trick. A Lord Caldlow, who we had heard mentioned in the story but have never seen, actually brings Borden's daughter to say goodbye, and we are met with the realization that this Lord Caldlow is actually Robert Angier, who seems that he has not died and has somehow framed Borden for his murder. Borden proceeds to freak out, try to get the attention of the guards, but it goes unnoticed. We are then met with John Cutter delivering the prestige materials or the tricks from the trial to this Lord Caldlow who has purchased them. When Cutter realizes that it is Robert Angier still alive, he also becomes very upset and does not like what he has done, ruining the daughter's life, ruining Borden's life. This is like much more than just a game to him or a show. After this, Angier instructs Cutter to deliver the machine to where all the prestige materials are in his old theater, and we then see Borden begin to make his way to the gallows to be hung. We see Angier and Cutter pushing the machine back, and Cutter goes to leave the theater as Angier puts the machine away. As he's leaving, we see a mysterious man walk into the theater, and then we again see Borden further walk up the gallows and be put in the noose. As Borden is hung, his final words are abracadabra, 
and we actually at the same time that he is hung hear a gunshot go off and cut back to where the machine was being put away and see that Borden has actually shot Angier when we just actually saw him die. The truth of the story was that Borden and his engineer Fallon are twins. Each twin carries on half of a life. They switch when is necessary to carry on their illusion and their trick. And this is how throughout the entire movie we did not know and thought that Borden was locked up alone when really one half of Borden was not behind bars and was able to actually do the final magic trick, kill Angie and complete the entire illusion of the movie. It's a lot going on in that one. A lot of ground to cover, but uh, good job there, Greg. Uh, as Brian mentioned, it is a, <laughs> yeah, it's a mind bender for sure. And in 2006, uh, it's interesting. There's not only The Illusionist that came out, but also Scoop that came out. So it's a big year for magic movies. This one's different, though, in that this is not just a movie about a rivalry. It's, it's also kind of this interesting parallel between uh, these different worlds of like you have one guy who's this showman who's like got a lot of pomp and he's like of a higher class and you know this other guy who's kind of uh, you may maybe a professor he's like down the working class magician he's not about the pizzazz and the show he's more about doing a really great trick for himself and it's it's interesting you see the contrast in these two different people playing off of each other and it's interesting how this rivalry goes farther and farther and farther and spirals more and more out of control. I think of a rivalry as being something that makes you better. Uh, this goes beyond that and goes into obsession. So mm -hmm. what point does this rivalry go to obsession? It's, it's pretty fast and early in the movie. Yeah, it's definitely early on in the movie, I'd say. I think the point for me that you really tell that it's an obsession versus just a rivalry is the scene where Angier or Hugh Jackman goes to send Olivia to work for Borden in that scene they kind of get in a brief argument and she mentions what about your wife it seemed at the beginning that it was more about his like upset over his lost wife and how Borden shouldn't be able to go on with his life because he cannot carry on his own life having lost his wife and at this point of the movie we see he doesn't even think about his lost wife anymore and rather only thinks about destroying Borden and being better than Borden. Yeah, and that's that's definitely one of the dark twists in the movie. It's not, like I said, with just rivalry, it's I've got to be better than that guy, mm -hmm. you know? Uh, I think about it, like, in terms of a sports thing sometimes, like, you know, Bird and Magic throughout their college and professional careers were just going back and forth, but they brought out the best in each other, and oddly enough, they end up becoming really good friends in the end because they realized it was through this other person that pushed them as this. This is not Bird and Magic, is it, Fry? No, it's not. No, this is... Uh... It's, it's very different from a lot of other magic movies, that at least that I've seen. I've never seen anything, and I feel like it really feeds into the obsession piece, where it's just one-upping the same trick. And it all starts on Borden's, and that obsession just mounts and mounts and one-ups and one-ups, and they hurt each other over it, and it's just a tit-for-tat that continues. Absolutely. So... It's their perseverance to the bee at the top that that drives them. But you're right. It's also out of just destroying each other. I found myself throughout this kind of favoring Borden's character or Christian Bale's character. I think in the beginning, I think he genuinely didn't know what knot that he tied. I think the death troubled him as well. Yeah, I think I took it in the funeral. The question as um, later finding out that Borden is a twin when he first asks which knot did you tie, and he says, I keep asking myself, but I don't know. I, f I find it the same way that 
whichever Borden was actually Borden that night and tied the knot messed up in the head by watching um, that drowning on stage. And as the other twin continually asks him, which knot did you tie? Like, what what ha- really happened? He can't even answer the question himself, so neither of the two twins know. And we won't, we never really get a concrete answer on what knot he tied because it was psychologically damaging for him. So there's a degree of intent that Angiers does throughout this movie. They're all very on purpose. And so through that, I kind of found myself favoring Borden. I don't know. Did you find yourself favoring one versus the other, Greg? Probably, if I recall, when I seen it way back when I was younger, like in theater or something, I think my first watch through, I actually favored uh, Robert Angier just because I was not watching close enough to the twists and turns and absorbing everything to see, like... Like you said, the intent and how Borden didn't really mean to do it. And it was kind of given to us from a perspective of Robert Angier or whatever. So I actually supported him. But as I've watched it more, I I do side more with Borden. He was honestly trying to make the trick better. It was what Julia wanted with the knots. Yeah, nothing that he did seemed to be on purpose except for the one sabotage. But he just seems like he had the rougher going his whole life than Angier did. That's interesting. Angier is a warmer character, easier to like. What about you, Brian? Did you find yourself siding or favoring either one as you were watching this? The part that got me probably the most on this question is the... uh, I'm trying to... I'm struggling for a word here. It's the... You noticed a... Uh, pronounced duality in Borden's character that until the twist at the end you never really grasp and uh, the kind of Jekyll and Hyde way in which he operates around his family and I feel like they used jumping back and forth through time on this movie to mask it more whereas if they just filmed like the flashbacks all as one thing that maybe you would have uh, gotten more skeptical of what was actually going on. Because you always think that his his henchman is, you know, that's just what he is. It's his bodyguard or his you know, muscle or some sort of fixer. You never really get a, a good purchase on the fact that it might be a twin. So, no, I, uh, I just thought that uh, you had one guy who is a showman, which is hilarious because he ends up being the greatest showman, and then one guy that's really the mind. You've got Michael Caine's character who is always siding with Angier because he needs the most help. He's not a natural musician. Uh, sorry, <laughs> a magician. Um, he doesn't see the trick for what it is. Uh, he can't distinguish how it's done. But he's he's the face. He's he is the. Uh, you know, he enjoys the prestige because that's that's what he is. He's the he's the abracadabra. And Borden's the the brain. He's the I came up with the trick and nobody can figure it out or it's hard to figure out or you know, it's he does the meat and potatoes part. So I guess that's a very long winded way of saying that I kind of always sided with the guy who the smartest guy in the room, not the flashiest. So Borden then. Yes. Yeah. And it's also interesting, we talked about how this wasn't a rivalry so much, but it's an obsession. The obsession actually destroys them both. And it's, they destroy themselves, not just the other. They blame the other for destroying them. Uh, They both do. But in reality, they kind of, their hatred towards each other and or their obsession towards this trick, both have destroyed themselves. Where do you see that come into play, Greg? Um, So we see, like, Robert Angier, like I said, I think... For me, the part where we see the obsession really destroy him is when it takes away, like, even his care for his lost wife or it takes away his ability to love. 
the whole movie, he really wants to have, like, the wife, the child, the the happy life, and he almost could have had that opportunity even with Olivia. I think at one point in the movie, she says she was in love with him and then ends up hating him because he sent her off, like, a stagehand to go fetch his clothes and be a spy for him. So he's presented with these opportunities to have everything that he wanted if he would just leave the obsession behind and he doesn't. And then with Borden, it's the same thing. It never really was an obsession with him. His first sabotage is just kind of getting back at Angier for losing his fingers and things like that. But then when they rid themselves of Angier and he ends up actually returning with the better trick that they didn't think he was going to get, he becomes obsessed himself, which ultimately leads to him being framed for the murder and leads to him losing one half of himself they really destroy themselves just by not focusing on anything else but like you said one-upping almost that that one trick because Borden in the end is kind of using a double with a twin that makes it easier for them to like sabotage each other I guess yeah and it's a secrecy it's it's basically he's obsessed with the secret and he can't share what he's doing with his wife so it ultimately leads to her hanging oh herself so I mean his obsession towards the trick mm-hmm. is, is what destroys him. Whereas, uh, you know, Jackman is, it's more of a straightforward, this is revenge, like, uh, or hatred, I should say, yeah, towards like the other person. Obsession, hatred, or obsession with a hatred for someone. And yeah, like you're saying, I think Borden's is just an obsession with himself being really the only one that knows everything that's going on. Right. And Angier, obviously amasses a dead body of, or a, a huge pile of dead clones so, like he's like become a murderer in the process he's like contorted god's will he's uh you know i mean he's and he's totally bent everything they don't really go into it too much in the movie besides for one line but being that he was a clone like the clone experienced everything he also experienced all the, all the, dying all those times like just because the one that was in the prestige didn't feel that didn't mean there wasn't like that version of him that was a living being that went through drowning and everything. And one of the greatest lines is when Cutter mentions how he originally said drowning was like going home to comfort him at Julia's uh, funeral. But then after realizing what Angier has become and how he's killed all of these clones basically by drowning, he says... I lied. Drowning was not like going home is agony. You put yourself through agony hundreds of times, you know? Yeah. And Angier loses his friend Cutler in the end because Cutler realizes, like, you've gone too far. Yeah. His... And, like, that's his close mentor. Mm-hmm. It was the one on. real person that remained in his life that he hadn't already pushed out due to the obsession. So he lost everyone in the end. Yeah. Brian, why don't you uh, hit us with a, a cast rundown? All right, so this was actually a pretty short cast rundown uh, when you talk about really the salient people that are a part of this movie. So we'll start with Hugh Jackman as uh, Robert Angier. We have Christian Bale as Alfred Borden. Michael Caine as Cutter. Uh, Piper Paraboo as Julia McCullough. Uh, Rebecca Hall as Sarah. Scarlett Johansson as Olivia Winscombe. Uh, Samantha Murren as Jess. Uh, David Bowie is Tesla, and Andy Sudeikis is Ali. As you were mentioning there, uh, Julia McCullough is she is the wife of Hugh Jackman's character Angier in the beginning. Just to clarify yeah. on that one, and uh, Olivia was Scarlett Johansson's character, the one who was the stage hand, uh, who worked for both of them. So, just to clarify. 
Some interesting parts here. The Nolan did not want actors known for period work because he did not want the audiences to look at this as a period piece. He was searching very much for what's modern and what feels current about it, even though it is set in a Victorian time. So he wasn't looking for necessarily this distant, uptight Victorian mentality. He looked at the Victorian area more as a time of invention and change and industrialization and science coming through. And that's the message she wanted to bring through this. So he was looking for actors who, who yeah. brought that as well. I think in set design, costume design, everything like that, at first glance, it could come off as a period film. And it's just because it's really well done. But he adds in aspects of sci-fi with the Tesla machines and mystery with the magic tricks and the obsession and like the actors that you're talking about and it really you don't see it as a period film and more as a story that's being told through the actors so knowing that do you feel like where do you see some of that casting choices sing through the best here in this uh how do you see i should say their performance does go more for the modern side of things and how they're choosing to portray themselves one thing i'll say about like the the acting choices is if you watch christopher nolan's movies like you watch just his the movies he's directed consecutively you've noticed he'll, he reuses these actors a lot through his movies so christian bales and several ones michael Caine's and a lot of movies and they're just really good at giving off emotion and making you feel the way that they feel so in that way he gets you more invested into these characters and great actors than the like setting and things like that so you're pulled in by like their feelings that you can almost feel they portray them really well i just think there's a good sense of that throughout the movie, and that's how he makes it just feel more of like the modern feel and less of a period film. Yeah. Brian, both of these characters have a duality in them. Obviously, one is uh, a twin, and the other kind of is playing a altered personality of this lord uh, character versus the stagehand. And they both also go through a metamorphosis, so those characters are changing. Pretty, pretty demanding role changes. How do you think Bale and Jackman handle that or why do you think that they were in particular selected i think christian i mean i understand what you're saying in terms of of the duality of christian bale's character but i think he was pretty much the most constant like the only time he ever struck back was after being struck first so you have this kind of consistent person in christian bale's split i mean they're not consistent as in they are two different people and that causes friction in their personal lives but they are fairly flatline consistent. And then you have the Angier character who is just, you know, Hugh Jackman is just the spikes of fire and hatred and obsession intermixed with him basically trying to show the world that he's not a crazy person. <laughs> mm -hmm. And he can only, he can only disguise that for so long. I think it's interesting that Bale does these two different twins and has to live these two different worlds. And he goes on to be Bruce Wayne. And yeah. uh, who is, yeah. you know, living these two different worlds himself. And uh, I couldn't help but think of, you know, Hugh Jackman, uh, you know, who goes uh, from Enlaimez playing this peasant thief to becoming this like wealthy lord figure and having a new identity. Here in this movie, he has done the same thing. He's basically framed his own murder, which is, a, I don't <laughs> want to spoil things, but uh, Lemez. Uh, yeah, I've seen Lemus. Yeah, it's a it's a framed uh, it's a framed murder where he constructs a new identity, and so it's just interesting that this is something that these characters will kind of go on to do again throughout their work. One thing about the constructing a new identity is 
all along, like at the very beginning of the movie, there's a scene where he's in bed with um, Julia, and they're talking about, she mentions the great Danton he ends up going on to use as his name, but she says how he had changed his name to hide from like to his embarrassment of his theatrical endeavors from his family. And it sounds French, too. Yeah, it, well, they never say at the beginning of the movie what the name he changed from was. Yeah. And then at the end of the movie, when we finally see Lord Caldwell, said, it's you, Robert Angier, and he says, like, no, I've always been Lord Caldwell. So oh. Caldwell may have actually been what his family name was originally, and whenever he framed his Robert Angier's murder, he just Ooh. resumed his old life, and that's how he was so wealthy and a lord and everything. Because his family seemed to be powerful, didn't want to be embarrassed by his uh, hmm. theatrical endeavors. So he already had this escape kind of built in. I think you're right about that. Good insights. I hadn't quite pieced that together. And Josh Hartnett was actually considered for the role of Robert Angier instead of Hugh Jackman. And while I personally don't like Josh Hartnett very much, I know Brian does. Yeah, I'm a fan. Actually, I think one of the funniest things that when I you know, really started thinking about this movie, like hardcore in terms of the cast, I was like, remember the time Wolverine fought Batman and both of them hooked up with Black Widow while Alfred was just kind of a spectator? <laughs> oh, that's, that's, that's perfect. I hadn't considered any of that. So, And David Bowie played, uh, or David Bowie paid the role as well. So. Yep. Oh, Smeagol. <laughs> while while, while, while Gollum helped. <laughs> He's... Yeah, <laughs> it's rare to see his face in a film. He's he played King Kong. He plays Caesar in um, the Planet of the Apes movies. So it's you don't see his face too often. But I think he's actually a, he's one of the funnier and one of my more favorite characters in this movie. And uh, David Bowie was hard to get for this movie. Uh, he initially declined the role of Tesla, but uh, Christopher Nolan flew out to him and personally said, "I can't imagine anybody else for this role than you. It's a larger-than-life persona, and we need you for this." And uh, because of that big gesture, uh, Bowie said, Took "Okay, the role. all right, I'll do it." The word "prestige" is actually a Latin term uh, from "prestigium," which means illusion. So I was I was kind of wondering where this term "the prestige" comes from because I was thinking of it more in terms of. Jackman taking credit, uh, like, you know, I, I need the prestige and the fame, but it's, it's, it's actually simpler than that. It's, it's, that is what the, the word itself means. Another nice nod to the title, the prestige is like that mysterious way that the trick kind of works that nobody can see. And the movie opens with the title, The Prestige, over all the cloned hats, which ends up being the prestige of Hugh Jackman's trick in the end of the movie. The clone is the prestige the man that either ends up in the box or ends up transported across the room. And it's the same thing with the hats. They either ended up remaining still or transported. So the secret is given to us right at the beginning of the movie, and we just can't see it. So it's a cool nod to the title right there. Yeah. And so Sam Mendes, director, wanted to do this movie. Uh, it, it would have been a follow-up for him from American Beauty in 99. He'd been nominated for seven Academy Awards for that. And so he, he wanted this movie. Uh, but anyway, the producers ended up going with uh, Christopher Nolan after seeing a copy of the following. And that's one of my all-time favorite films. I love that movie. That's a tough choice, though. Mendes versus Nolan. Do you, yeah. If you were in their shoes, do you feel like they made the right call? Um... I think so, just because a lot of Christopher Nolan's movies have this really dreamy feel, and I think that that just complements the magicians and the illusion um, kind of thing really well. So just like, I, l I really like the way that Christopher Nolan presents dreams and concepts, and I think that there's always a little bit of mystery right in front of your eyes you can't even see with his films. So I think it was really well, and 
Have either of you seen the following or following? I've not yet. I have not either. So it's it's black and white. It's it's definitely worth a watch. It's um a lot of twists and turns, and it's set up very similar the way it jumps through time to this movie. So you thought it lend so you can see like it lending itself to this like when someone might read the script. Yeah. Yeah. I would see them. Yeah, and just like the style of how he laid out the plot line of the movie, just you kind of start one of those things where you see the end, but you don't know it's the end kind of thing. Like how Prestige opens with Cutter explaining the illusion to what we find out at the very last scene of the movie is Borden's daughter. Mm -hmm. So it's the same type of thing like that. I I don't know, when I saw Sam Mendes and you're talking about American Beauty and stuff, I'm I'm sitting there thinking instead of the uh, illusion, (laughs) the the, the transporting man, I kept saying it's like the magical bag in the wind trick. (laughs) (laughs) If you're thinking that's pretty early... uh, to be talking about this it was this movie took a long time to come together nolan was busy uh, at the time in post-production with insomnia he actually had his brother jonathan nolan work on the script and then he kind of comes back in the process later uh so it was a nolan brothers collaboration do they do the two of them work together frequently because i'm only i'm only familiar with jonathan in terms of my studies within this movie yeah i'm not very po- like familiar with jonathan's work so i wouldn't be able to say for sure if they work together a lot um, if they do work together, seems that Christopher Nolan takes uh, most of the credit most of the time. Yeah. Just yeah. Be, his name carries a lot more weight, but I would think they at least spitball ideas together for probably most of their movies. So the Nolan brothers go back and forth with this for five years, and that's a pretty long time, really, when you consider it. Uh, so this is a project of, uh, that they keep coming back to. So in early 2000, Nolan planned to direct the film uh, before Batman Begins, but they accelerated the Batman Begins release, and Nolan started the project again, uh, negotiating with Jackman and Bale in uh, October 2005. So we're a whole another five years down the road from where this thing began. So it just kind of goes to show you sometimes the long road that a, a movie can take to to come to fruition. Yeah, I didn't realize until researching a little bit about this movie as well that it was actually from a 1995 book titled The Prestige, and I hadn't known that previously, so kind of interested, might be interested in reading the book just to see how different it is from the movie, being that it's one of my favorites. And I think one of the things that I had seen in an interview that they went back and forth on a lot was the the content revolving around the journals. Mm-hmm. I think I'm glad that they ended up keeping the stuff with the journals. I think it adds some, the small bit of glue that we needed to have somewhat of an understanding what's happening between these uh, cuts between time and scene. From what I read, and I haven't read the novel, it's fairly faithful, but they uh, just simply downplay certain themes within that. So one of them being uh, there's a strong sense of spiritualism in the Victorian era. So you'll see like people back in that time like going to seances or like looking oh, yeah. the crystal ball, trying to reach out to the old, to the dead. There's a fascination of the relationship between the dead and the living and the Victorian era. And uh, those are themes that you don't see in this movie. And yeah. So, I think that those themes lent themselves to more of the period film. And with that uh, twin movie that we'd mentioned earlier, The Illusionist, which I had also seen that, we get a lot of, I feel like, some of that seance type feel and spiritual type stuff more out of that movie where Christopher Nolan kind of focused on his whole movie's like a magic trick. He's trying to fool you the whole time. But also the science. Yeah, the science as well. I like how... The mysterious um, science, like the weird stuff. Like from the first scene where we see Angier go to the Tesla show, there's that guy that's making a fuss, this thing's going to blow, and it actually ends up being one of Edison's men that we see later in Colorado Springs. So I kind of think it's cool to see how Edison and Tesla are going back and forth 
behind the scenes in the movie, similarly like destroying each other, burning down workshops, sabotaging shows, similar to lead just like how the two magicians are going back and forth in the movie. That is a movie I would like to see. Subtle undertone. Tesla and Edison. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, that's happening. Oh, really? I don't know that was either. Tell me more. Yep. The uh, the movie is called The Current War, like as in electrical current. Oh, clever title. Mm-hmm. I was just curious who the casting is for these two for these two larger sure, than life sure. figures. Okay. Um, well, so this this movie's already happened, uh, basically. Uh, so the current war, uh, as in electrical current, is uh, all about the battle between uh, Edison and Tesla. Um, the two uh, starring members are uh, Tom Holland and Benedict Cumberbatch. Oh, nice! And, uh, That's pretty good. Yeah, uh, Tom Holland actually plays uh, Samuel Insull. I'm not oh. sure exactly how he fits into it. Nicholas Holt actually plays Nikola Tesla. Okay, yeah, he's Beast from uh, X Men. Okay. Yeah, so I actually haven't seen this movie yet. It's on my to do list, but I figured since uh, you guys uh, wanted to see it. I uh, should let you in on it. No. Uh, it was not given fantastic reviews. It was a 6.1 on IMDb. Uh, it's about an hour and 47 minutes long. But, uh, yeah, like I said, it's on my list. I don't really pay attention to uh, anybody's reviews on anything. So I would just uh, have at. Yeah, those, those are names that I like. And um, I'm, I will be checking out that movie for sure. So, But that, to, to Greg's point, though... That is a nice parallel, the rivalry that goes between uh, Tesla and uh, Edison. Not really mentioned at all, but if you watch the movie several times, you see it. Basically, like, they sabotage one of Tesla's shows. They also burn down a workshop. We see him... They steal from each other. Ruining Borden's workshop, ruining each other's shows, the magician. So it's pretty cool. Yeah. So, in the script, though, the Nolans emphasize the magic story through a dramatic narrative playing down the visual depiction of the stage magic. There, there, there is not this um, romantic image of fooling you. They're, they're letting you behind the stage frequently. So, I think it's interesting. There's moments where he puts you in the crowd to give you the sense of uh, what it's like to be in the crowd, but he also is also putting you behind the stage. As a director... Did you think that he did both of those things well? And uh, I, it's not something I noticed my first time through the movie, but uh, it, it's a camera work thing. Yeah. So in another interview that I had seen for this movie, it was talking about how they shot this movie. And there would be, I guess, 20, 30-minute sessions where they would just have to act out a scene. And Christopher Nolan would simply just have the cameraman walk around the room and then do it several times. And they'd just pick angles out of that. Now, going, like, behind the stage for the magic tricks and then into the viewpoint of the audience, I think in this film it works well. It actually gets you more invested in the tricks. Instead of just seeing a magic trick on stage and, and immediately writing it off in your head as, a like, a camera trick, you're looking at it and seeing all this intricate stuff that's going on behind the scenes and what it means to, like, the characters in the movie. And then he uses that behind the stage, like, um, for example, we see the part where Angier falls through the stage, breaks his leg, and Borden is waiting to go up. We don't at where under the stage we don't see from the audience, but we can all almost imagine what the audience are about to experience because we had seen earlier in the movie the part where Angier comes in one door and walks out the other. So it's just um, I think it makes you more invested in the actual magic tricks themselves. 
I, yeah, exactly. So what I was trying to say is it demystifies the magic, mm-hmm. or but it's not. Uh, it's it's having you gain an appreciation perhaps for the craft and the ingenuity that goes into these performances, which is what they are. They're performers. Yeah, and it like I said, I think it further separates Angier as that showman and allows Borden to further be that mastermind kind of guy because Angier's always obsessed with he wants to just be the man in the prestige. Borden's always obsessed with. How does this work? And he always find like his ways of sabotaging the shows were always an interesting way of exploiting how the trick worked. And he knew how the trick worked, and then he would exploit it somehow. So uh, getting the double to betray him and come up slow the first time, and then actually getting the double to be tied up above the stage while he as comes up and makes it look like he's used his own magic to sabotage the magic trick. It's it's pretty cool. Brian, I remember at one point we were talking about a different movie and in terms of flashbacks and weave it, time weaving. This movie does a lot of jumping, as we had mentioned earlier. Uh, there are a lot of time skips in this. Uh, flash forwards, flashbacks, moving from one character to the other character. If I recall, this is not a technique that you're as big of a fan of. Does it work for you here, though? Um, I won't lie that it's not my favorite technique in film. Um, just from a an under an early understanding uh, standpoint, it's just I, I just feel like it's a little discombobulated. Uh, it works for this movie in certain areas. I think it's actually a detriment also to this movie in certain areas. Uh, maybe if they just consolidated it a little bit more and made it a little less jumpy. But uh, you know, like our guest was saying, you know, this is something Christopher Nolan does to uh, to create a mystique, uh, to put a dreamy air to the quality of the film, or a, a dream within a dreamy era. So it's uh, you know it, it it works in a way. Um, is it going to be everybody's favorite? No, but. Does that mean it's not enjoyable? I think it just means you. It almost demands a second watch, really. Yeah. And oh yeah, oh absolutely. It um plays through and cuts in a way that you watching the film receive all of the information that you need. You know that he's being cloned. You know that basically everything that's going on. And then the end of the movie comes, and you're still fooled the first time you watch it. And it's just because. Almost just like Cutter says in the film when he's explaining what the prestige is. It's like, you're not really watching the movie for the secret. You want to have an enjoyable movie experience. You kind of want to be fooled. And he just uses the cuts really well in this movie to do that, I think. Like, showing you just the bits of information you need and then cutting somewhere else. I think he also mentioned as uh, in an interview he wanted the movie to unfold as the novel did. And there's a sense of a novel going back and giving you past references that mm-hmm. this movie does complicate things as you mentioned brian that a novel sometimes has the liberty to do that a director of a movie rarely would say yeah i'm gonna go back and oh there was oh there's i'm referring back to this one thing that happened this one time and then over here side movies usually have to have a discipline to cut down to what's essential you don't have as long or as much money or as many scene tra- changes and I think this is just something that Nolan does really well. I personally do really like it. I mean, I, th- I see this movie as going a long way to help him get to... Uh, I-, I personally like Inception even more. Oh, yeah. And uh, I think without having gone through Memento and then Inception... Uh, sorry, uh, The Prestige, we don't get to the Inception, which is masterful weaving. Uh, oh, so, yeah. So, I mean... 
And it's the same thing with um, that following movie. You mentioned that that's why they selected Christopher Nolan to create this, and that's the same exact way that that movie is set up. Just cuts that kind of almost, without warning, just go long distances of time and setting, and by the end of the film, you kind of can piece them all back together, but you're only getting small pieces of the picture along the way, and it's unfolding a story the way that he wants you to see it. I don't think many directors handle complexity as well as he does. Yeah. It's awesome. Um, I'd agree with that. Awesome. Along the lines of what I was talking about, unfolding like a book, the uh, they don't come right up across the screen and hit you across the face with it, but the book is divided into like different, I guess, you know, chapters or acts. Uh, you know, there, in the book, there's the pledge, the turn, and the prestige. And he thought of these as a three-act screenplay that was structured around the elements of the magic trick. In an interview, he said it, it took a long time to figure out how to achieve the cinematic versions of the literary devices that drive the intrigue of the story. Shifting the points of view, ideas within the journals, within the journals that had stories, finding the cinematic equivalents for those literary devices, that was a very complex thing. So he, it was hard for him, and as like I said, this took five years for... Uh, the Nolan brothers to work through. Uh, it's interesting how they thought about this in terms of a magic trick itself, because they are basically tricking you. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think the underappreciated trick in this is that Jackman's character was this mysterious figure. We don't see her. Angier was Lord um, Caldwell. Col- yeah, Caldwell, and uh, that 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 would be a big twist. That, if you think about it, on a normal story, that would be the big twist in a lot of movies. Mm-hmm. But then this movie turns it on its head one more time. There's a twin. That you yeah. don't even know was there. That and then was, they turn it on its head again. And that was like the final magic trick. Borden walking up to the gallows, the ordinary, like you've seen in movies someone get hung before and die. And we don't know that he has a twin at this point. So we're given the pledge, the turn. He is, he's hung. And, you know, he says abracadabra and he goes away. And then the final prestige, he's immediately brought back in a different part of the city, killing the guy that he just got murdered. He just, he was just hung for the murder of the man that he shot after. It's, it's pretty complex. Yeah, and Angiers does it too. He's murdered. Like, we've seen his dead body. Yeah. Uh, we've gone through the trial, and we saw how it happened in a flashback of, like, he drowned. But then, all of a sudden, he walks back into the jail, and you're seeing him. Yeah. And he just has a goatee. And I find, like, him walking back into the jail was such a shock to see him alive, even though we had already seen that the machine was creating clones and things like that. Like, we were, like I said, given that information and then just kind of, like, back far enough ago in the movie that it wasn't right on our mind by the time he was displayed. By the way, where is Borden's lawyer in all of this to be like, hey, the guy who I'm on trial for that I killed, he just walked back in here and rubbed my nose in it. Like, how do you not, like, get somebody to be like, hey, find this guy fast. I don't know if this is just by chance because they were using the same actors or not as the guards all the time, but in the one scene, Borden plays the trick on the one guard and locks his ankle up to the table, and then that is the guard that's standing with him when he's saying, that's the man I'm accused of murder. And the guy's like, I don't care. I'm not listening to you. He says something to that effect. Like, I don't care what you say. And I think, I didn't know if that was meant to be there or if I was overanalyzing things at this point. I think it was just simply, I sure it is. Yeah, like, yeah. whatever you say, like. One of the things that really irritated me about this movie is apparently in Victorian era London, there are just tons of people that look like Hugh Jackman. <laughs> 
like the ease at which they found somebody to be a Hugh Jackman double irritated the crap out of me. Where's that guy now? Can we have him be Wolverine now that Hugh Jackman's done? So uh, Nolan kept a quick pace on the production by shooting handheld cameras, as Greg was mentioning. The lighting is not that sophisticated. It's uh, it's kind of uh, fuzzy or raw, so to speak. They rely on a lot of it on natural lighting on location. There's not a romanticism with with how this is shot. Uh, it, it's 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 kind of gritty uh, mm-hmm. in a way. Did you like that? Did you like that choice? Yeah, I I think I like slightly darker, grittier films. So. That's um, part of the reason I like that following movie. Definitely a reason I like this movie. And if I were to list off some of my favorite films, I think a decent amount of them would fall in that category. Yeah. And to your point, like they would just put a, a camera on a guy's shoulder and then walk around the room. It's it's bouncy. It feels like you're there. Michael Caine was just saying, you got to be really sharp because you don't know what the camera's looking at. You, yep. you don't know where it's coming from. You got to you got to be you got to be on and you got to be focused because you never know when you're on camera and where it's coming from. Yeah, and they have like the base set of instructions. This is how it's going to go. But by doing it so long and having the cameraman walking around too, and then the characters start walking around, it uh, just like you said, it makes you really feel like you're in there kind of in their shoes watching from you're watching from somebody's point of view at all times not that you know specifically whose point of view but seems like you're a person in their conversation yeah it was interesting sarah uh the character of sarah which was rebecca hall in the movie she slipped at one point and yelled at him in their argument saying i know what you are like uh kind of uh you know, slipping out and she was afraid that she had ruined things or, you know, that was going to get cut. But they actually kept it in there anyway because it was a happy moment of uh, they felt like that was going to, you know, it's like a, another one of those seeds that are planted. Many of these seeds are planted deliberately oh, throughout, yeah. throughout the movie. The scene where we first meet Fallon in with Sarah, they're talking for a second and he excuses Fallon out of the room and then she brings up that she's pregnant and Borden at the time says, we should have told Fallon, which makes me think in that part of the movie... That was the Fallon was the Borden that was in love with Sarah, because later in that scene, Sarah he says I love you to Sarah, and she says No, you you don't love me today. She can tell when it's the twin that doesn't love her, or when it's the twin that does love her, but she doesn't know that it's two people. I did not realize that until coming back to it. I actually thought that was a terrible thing to say on my first pass. I was just like, I don't like that. That's just like really mean. You know, you realize that 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 she can tell the difference. One of those two men love her. Yeah. And one, the other one does not. One has a sincerity and, like, probably a look in his eye. I mean, that's what they want you to feel in watching the film, I think, that he truly loves her. And then, which, come to the end of the movie, I was super happy that it was actually the little girl's daughter or the little girl's dad that survived and not, you know, it wasn't like her uncle. She never is going to know that, but it was just a nice touch for me. But it was nice seeing, like... Like they make love important in the film, but like you said, it's a dark film. It's basically like what it can what can happen if you take away the things that you really love and like you lose those if you focus too much on something else. Brian, were there any seeds or foreshadowing moments that uh, you liked in particular? Because there are several. The whole movie was steeped in it, so it wasn't. I don't think there's any one that I'd point to. I think one of my actual favorite ones that I just noticed this last time was the scene where Borden meets Sarah. And her nephew kind of sees through the trick. The bird gets smashed and disappears, and he starts crying, saying the bird's dead. They bring the bird back, and at the end of the show, Borden goes and shows him and says, look, here's the bird, and he says, but where's his brother? And it's like, not that he actually knows, but then later in the movie, that's exactly what happens to Borden. Nobody sees 
that there's two of him and one of them was smashed in the box and actually killed and you know he's just living on his life no one's ever going to really know he was a twin i like how um angier and borden go to a magic show of an older chinese man and he uh jackman's more worried about like how does he get this fishbowl filled up and again borden's more focused on the man himself the bigger bigger picture he takes several steps back Mm -hmm. and he's like word on the street is that he's not actually even this old chinese man and he's this is all a fake uh, thing He, he can actually get around quite well and and so yeah, he's, it, seen. he's committed his entire life to this illusion of who he himself is, the identity, his illusion. And that in itself was a big foreshadowing moment for yeah. who Borden himself would be with, with his twin. Lives the trick. His trick and Hugh Jackman couldn't even fathom Living pretending like... He's only interested in the applause. Like, that's the thing. Like, Borden always knew that about him. He was like, how does he like spending the prestige uh, under the stage? Mm -hmm. And I also did think that it was fair, instead of obviously relegating one twin to a crappy life of, like, in the shadows of being this fat guy in a top hat, they (laughs) they did switch back and forth. But that does become very problematic in their love lives. Because one of them is in a, uh, you know, not as, I don't think there's as much sincerity in a relationship, though, with Olivia. And the other one is in a relationship with Sarah, and that's where it gets sticky for him. Like I said, that's it's his uh, inability to share that secret with anybody that ultimately destroys him. It loses one of them loses Olivia because of like how can you be so cold? Yeah. And then the other one is uh, because he didn't care because at that moment that was not the guy who cared about her and he only cared about mm-hmm. Olivia. And so it, it it's an unsettling moment in the movie, but it all makes sense upon that second and third pass of the movie. So yeah. there's a lot. I, again, we're just hitting the iceberg. When you go through this, the more times you go through it, you're just like everything is, is a setting reference. it up what's coming everything is a reference or a foreshadowing it's ridiculous actually yeah for sure what did you think about the uh, texture of the era the victorian setting brian i mean it was a great period in history that's the reason so many people you know film with it even in science fiction and fantasy it's it's highly used so anytime you have a chance to uh, really enjoy a well done movie of that time period it's worth it i think they captured the busyness of the era well i mean the streets seem full and lively if you look in the background there's posters everywhere in the victorian era you don't have radio yet even and so there is a lot of graphic imagery and like walls were covered of cities like with advertisements big billboards on the sides of buildings and like uh, again paper posters slapped everywhere it's not just in the theater um the only places you really see this now are like if you go to see a concert like at a venue like they've got slathered with like all the next concerts that are coming but the urban streets of the victorian era are like that and i i think that's just one of those interesting moments that transports you there yeah i i would have to agree it was like the costumes are really well the sets i really like the scene where um angier follows borden and sees him with his wife and daughter for the first time and i think that's one of those scenes that really brings you into the setting as he walks down the street and you kind of see like the little market and it's kind of dirty but everyone's happy and it's not realizing like seemed really realistic we talked about how nolan didn't necessarily focus on being a period piece he chose not to spend hours and hours and hours building these intricate sets that most period pieces do and there is a relentless focus towards the plot and all we talked about the planting seeds as i would call it of what's coming they don't choose to just be like, oh, now you're in London. 
you know, now you're in Colorado. Uh, they, he actually never went to London for these theaters. They, these, these are just, uh, they're about five Los Angeles theaters. They're old <laughs> themselves, but um, he's not being very accurate, so to speak. Mm. Uh, so uh, it's enough to fool you, though. I mean, but this just goes to show you, he's not here to show you of, oh, this is exactly how this lady's dress would have been, or like, I think we're going to send you, set you down in this scene and they're going to be doing something. This is how people in the Victorian era would have eaten. Um, that's just not where the focus of this movie is. Yeah, it's the story. Yes. Always. So the time and the place, I would say, not un- not important, but or certain, it's not that they're unimportant. They're just de-emphasized. I don't know if you agree and or like that, Brian. No, I actually was saying that, uh, no, I completely agree with that, but I do have a quick uh, retraction slash uh, fix here on uh, the movie The Current War. Uh, apparently the release date, the first time it was shown at a film festival was 2017. Its major U.S. debut date is going to be October of this year. Uh-huh. Cool. Well, I still look forward to it then. Forward to it in the future. Yeah. Quick fix. Again, there's not a lot of emphasis to set building on this. They did build a set in the back lot of Universal. And they did go to Colorado for, for that. Osgood Castle mm-hmm. uh, is a real place where, where Tesla is. But, oh. um, Brian, what was your thoughts on the de-emphasis of the time and place and putting it more in terms of this is just, it's happening now because this is a time of science emerging and the time of Tesla. and uh, It's purposeful, but it's obviously not a big character in the story of the Victorian era, so to speak. I don't notice a de-emphasis on it. I think it's, I mean, just because they don't do anything massively overt, um, time and place always has, always shows itself in the fact that their dresses that way, the theaters look a certain way, uh, you're still using, you know, flame lamps uh, right at the cusp of electricity. So it's, uh, I feel like the mood and overall tenor of the movie can't escape it. Uh, no matter how much de-emphasis they put on it. Mm-hmm. What were your thoughts on the differences in, uh, uh, I don't know if you, did you notice anything like the differences in how Angier was portrayed as well as how Borden was portrayed, both in their in their wardrobe perhaps? I was going to say, uh, just just based on and everything I've said so far about the, the difference between the two of them, one guy is all flash and panache and the other one is just, you know, subtle brilliance. Yeah, yeah, th- there's an understated nature of Borden's character. What did you think about the ladies of the movie, uh, of the Victorian era? There's, there's a great difference between what Sarah's wearing versus, you know, uh, Olivia. And... Anyway, it was a very conservative... Oh, Julia. oh, Julia. Yeah, Julia. So Julia and Olivia, there's the stage world versus the Victorian era is very, very um, cover-up, so to speak, and modest. It was interesting to see the stage version versus that. But uh, what did you think about the, the female attire? I can't even really say that I focused on it too much. I think the big difference i noticed between them which we only saw julia a couple of times on stage and in my opinion she seemed more of just like like because they only showed her in one trick so we don't really know but she seemed more of just like an object a piece of one of the tricks while olivia seemed like she actually improved the entire show she was like like an actual assistant when the other one was there as more of just the distraction hmm Okay, well, I was for me, it showed you that they were they were specifically stated to be a distraction. Oh, the show. yeah, they were. And they were. It was even mentioned at one point of like, what's going to be more distracting than a than a foxy lady to put on stage? Yeah, I guess what I was trying to mention was like, the scenes with Julia on stage, she just kind of stands there and smiles, while the scenes with Olivia on stage, 
she's walking across the stage, she's doing something, pulling the lever on the professor's machine or, you know, catching stuff as um, Angier's throwing it. So she has just seemed to be more active and lively than the other one. Yeah, I looked up a few images or whatever. I'm not I'm not at all a historian expert on this, and I'm certainly not in the wardrobe department, but the Victorian era was more modest, and uh, for modern-day audiences, they both, both Julia as well as Olivia, they made them a little more alluring for modern obvi- audiences than the time. What they would have been like. Than they would, they would have been like at the time. You know, obviously the men's wardrobe was far more reserved. What did you think about the score on this one, Brian? Uh, I would say that there's probably not something I paid less attention to. Okay. Um, uh, Greg. That's funny. What are your thoughts about the music on this? I'm a little weird about movie soundtracks. I like um, instrumental music, I think. And I actually, there's this very cool video on YouTube, if you could look it up sometime, about a shepherd tone, Christopher Nolan's use of a shepherd tone. And it's basically um, when you switch through alternating frequencies of music i'm gonna butcher the explanation of this but watch the thing on what a shepherd tone is and how it's done and essentially what it is is if they play a small clip of this sound on loop it actually creates an infinite rising sound so like swelling yeah so when you get to like the colorado springs it says in the background of that song you hear it's rising the whole time and it's used to like build suspense and like I mean, I listen to soundtracks when I'm working because I don't like to listen to stuff with words. It just gets me focused on my work. But Christopher Nolan uses that a lot, that shepherd tone. It's actually the sound of Batman's tires driving on the car, the Batmobile. It, it's in this one. It's in the. It's in Dunkirk. But it's worth looking up, and it might give you a better appreciation of the sound because sound can go unnoticed, but I think some of the scenes of this movie without the sound the way it was would be slightly less suspenseful or just like the cuts would have seemed more rough than they were. Oh, I would agree. And I I would say in the first half of the movie, I might be more in Brian's camp. But I'd say as the tricks are unveiling and things are coming to a climax, I feel like the soundtrack has also built there. When we go to Colorado, I also feel like when we're with Tesla, there's a big mysterious hollow tone Mm -hmm. to what's there as if to say treacheries afoot or there's things that we can't comprehend as humans going on here and i thought the music definitely was a big part of that yeah and he uses like uh the same sounds over and over again like the same lay motive for each of the different characters or places like tesla does actually have that same soundtrack played over him when he appears in the movie sarah and borden's relationship actually has a specific soundtrack that's played every time they're on screen together so different things like that yeah and and obviously the big swelling at the end and oh yeah yeah and this movie cuts off very abruptly at the end and somehow the music also had come to a big swell and then it cuts off to uh you know the what is it are you paying attention he's um you want to be fooled you want to be fooled yes brian i think it's time we get into some uh, awards i'm all set man greg who's your mvp of the prestige I think that Borden or uh, Christian Bale would have to be my MVP. Great choice, great choice. Brian, who's your MVP? Uh, I didn't go with a person on this. Uh, I actually went with a, a feeling, and it's the rivalry and the obsession that is the MVP of this movie. It's the overlying piece that makes the movie move, and uh, I think it's really the... The, the the grip the 
the prestige, if you will, of the movie. Interesting. Uh, way to go out of the box on that one. I really wanted to give this to uh, Christopher Nolan. The weaving back and forth is really great. But Christian Bale, as an actor, really gets mine as well here. Uh, it, it's too hard to pass up on because he's playing Fallon and he's playing Borden. He's playing Borden 1 versus Borden 2. He's he's covering a lot of grounds. Uh, there's more that like it's not just a duality. It's it's the character is also evolving from a young time when he's ambitious and wants to do something to a, a real crafted expert like I'm on top of the game and I'm cutting edge and I'm experimenting and being revolutionary and um that evolution in the character as well as the multiple uh, characters that he's playing. It's mm-hmm. just it's it's really good stuff from uh, for Christian Bale. So as good as Nolan was, I have to go Christian Bale on this one. Best Supporting Actor, Greg. Um, for Best Supporting Actor, I think that I would have to say Andy Serkis, honestly. He's just, he's not in there a lot. I was going to probably pick Scarlett Johansson originally, but I'm a big fan of Andy Serkis, and I think that he adds uh, like a little bit of pizzazz or something that's needed in those scenes involving Tesla in Colorado. He carries the story on through Colorado well for me. He's, he himself seems like a mysterious character that's yeah. hanging out with this. It, it adds to the uh, mystery that is Tesla. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Brian, how about you? Who's your supporting actor? Oh, I got to give it to Michael Caine. Uh, I love Michael Caine in, in everything, and uh, I love the tutelage that happens when Michael Caine plays these supporting characters. Yeah. And for me, I'm going to go with uh, Michael Caine as well. I do want to give a nod to Andy Serkis with you, but uh, yeah, Michael Caine, he acts as a bit of a pseudo-narrator at times for the movie. Oh, yeah. And it seems very natural and in motion with the character. Uh, Greg, Hidden Jim, who's the undersung hero here? I think Rebecca Hall is the actress's name, or Sarah. I think she does really well. Without her acting and like the arguments and stuff with Borden, we wouldn't really see Borden having much of a downfall. I think that she is decently underappreciated, and I say that also because I can't think of too many other movies that I've seen her in, personally. Yeah. And I thought that she did a pretty decent performance in this film. Brian, how about you? Who is your hidden gem? Uh, hidden gem is actually Ricky Jay. He's the guy who is holding the rope that eventually plunges Julia into the tank that she dies in. Uh, He is actually a real uh, magician. I'm going to try to say musician every time for some reason. Uh, He's actually a real magician, and uh, he kind of pops up in a lot of things I like, but uh, I thought it was cool that they integrated him into this. That is a good point. Greg actually uncovered mine a little bit earlier. My hidden gem is going to be Sarah's nephew. I couldn't find an exact name for this boy who does it, but the uh, the boy who was upset and the magician's show at the bird who had been uh, seemingly crushed in the cage and he's upset, they tried to insist that he's not, but uh, the boy's uh, continuing to say, no, where is his brother? You know, young actors are hard to do, uh, and mm-hmm. uh, this movie has no tolerance for cheese whatsoever, and... Credit to this little guy. He's he's not young, and uh, or sorry, he is young. He added to the, the scene. That's hard to do as a young actor. So. Yeah, I, that is one of my favorite scenes or sections of the movie is that whole part with the nephew there. If you had to recast somebody, Greg, who would it be and who might you put in their place? 
A very tough question, I feel, because I, I really like Hugh Jackman. I really like Borden, Michael Caine. Like I said, these are actors that I see in a lot of Christopher Nolan's films, so I almost don't want to recast anyone. If I had to recast someone, Julia or Hugh Jackman's wife, she's not in there or not, so I feel like she could be replaced without it changing much of the movie. And I feel like, I'm not sure how it is in the book, but it would have been different if she was someone that looked more similar to Scarlett Johansson, and they kind of played on that a little bit, how Hugh Jackman really could have had everything that he wanted with um, Olivia at one point saying she loved Robert Angier's character but ends up hating him because huh. he sends her off. I hadn't considered them, there being a physical similarity between the two of them needing to be there, but that's an interesting take. That probably puts a little bit of water on mine. But uh, I don't have any... I'm bad with actors um, and actresses' names. I, I'm just... I'm a movie fanatic, but I get more invested as them as characters than actors. Well, I'm with you. On, uh, I'm going to go with Piper Paraboo, uh, who did uh, Julia... Uh, McCullough, who's Hugh Jackman's assistant and wife in the beginning, and I'm going to suggest Linda Cardellini there. Uh, she seemed a little... Or, sorry, the, the character as portrayed by Piper was a little too cheery given everything that was going on. Yeah. And so, I, I, I don't know if I'm... I'm not saying that there's a certain sarcasm that's there that or a certain uh, ability to still be likable but still be in a messy situation that Linda Cardellini has. I, I, I'm going way back here, but I mean uh, the dysfunction and the mess that's around in Freaks and Geeks, but she's still your protagonist and stuff like that that's on that. So um, I don't know. I, I, I've always liked her, and uh, she just comes to mind. They're actually the same age, so that's a one-to-one replacement. <laughs> so, uh, Brian, how about you? Who's your recast? It's in no way like a necessary thing, but I could have used maybe a little bit more creep to uh, Tesla. So I was thinking maybe Christopher Lee. Okay. Yeah. I can see that. Yeah. Ominous. Yeah. You. Yeah. We're going just uh, something. S- something a little darker. Straight up Dracula at that point. Yeah. Best shot of the movie, Greg. There's a lot of pretty good shots in this movie. I think my favorite shot is actually just the opening with the hats on the ground because it's such a huge secret and twist in the movie that you don't see till later. And it's just such a clean opening to the film. Mm, interesting. Brian, best shot. Uh, my part is also in Colorado Springs, but it is the scene where he's showing him the field of light bulbs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, the field of light bulbs. And, and they all illuminate. That is just, I oh man, I love that shot. I'm going to match you on this one. The, when, when Andy Serkis' character is talking to Hugh Jackman's character in the field of light bulbs, like they're all out, and you have a pretty tight shot, and then they warm up, as these old incandescents do, and you see them go from dim to bright, and then the camera's also zooming out here. Mm-hmm. And it's a moment of, as, they, as Hugh Jackman said, uh, real magic in it so uh and the dialogue there certainly helps but the shot makes it all the better because uh jackman's like where are the wires and like circus is like exactly (laughs) i would like to uh that would just be that that was a moment of movie magic i really liked what about uh you greg what's your best scene two it's pretty cliche to select this as my favorite scene but just the way that it's shot and clipped together the part where borden is walking to the gallows and jumps right to him shooting and killing uh, Angier underneath the theater. That part where right as he's hung, they they use the sound of like him dropping and the sound of the gunshot almost simultaneously and just the back and forth and like the the dialogue that's kind of narrating that scene. I really like it. 
And uh, Brian, what about you? What is your best scene? To remind you of happy times, uh, my best scene is the camaraderie sequence between Kane, Jackman, Paraboo, and Bale as they discuss the tricks at the very beginning. I felt like it gave a basis for all of their characters going forward and what you can kind of expect from them. And uh, I really think that that was just being such a tone setter was one of the most important scenes of the movie. Hmm, interesting. I'm going to go... Uh, so you went with the beginning of the movie. Greg went with the end of the movie. I, I have a hard time not going with the last scene there as everything's coming into... Uh, you know, the, the stage is burning up underneath and the clone boxes are getting burned and uh, Michael Caine has left Angier. And again, I, I, I know you're not supposed to like either one of these guys over the other one, but I do. I kind of side with Borden yeah. and kind of at least him getting his last moment of shooting Angier and ending the rivalry obviously his twin is gone but that's going to be my favorite scene and i do want to give a nod to the moment of where sarah is helping him with uh his fingers when he's had his fingers cut off and she's like they're bleeding as if this had just happened but they had later in the movie showed you, yeah they had later showed you in the movie where they uh hammered them off with chisels which would be that's that's a commitment uh but that's just a nod on that one uh uh, Brian, change one thing if you had to change something. So I know we're focusing in this movie on uh, this one trick. Transported Man, the real Transported Man, the original Transported Man. No matter how you market it, it's about the Transported Man. I would have liked to have seen more tricks. Like you kind of get like the little bit at the beginning and they discuss like the bullet catch and, and you got the fishbowl and stuff like that. But then they drop everything but the transported man they keep bringing back like these little ones like the rings and stuff give me something you don't have to go big like transported man but give me some other tricks i I would have liked to have seen some some more mystique because like that audience uh most of the time when they're showing these like rudimentary ones like it took them all the way to the end to just be like you're coming to see one thing you don't want to see any of this other crap here it is. That is really good. Uh, I hadn't considered that. I, I like that. I almost like it better than mine. I'm. <laughs> I, it's definitely safer than mine. For me, my change one thing is going to be, instead of having Fallon and Jackman die, which I'm departing from the novel on this one, I would rather see a third entity rise and totally dominate them and make them forgotten about to where they realize their obsession was all for nothing and they've been left with nothing and that I want to see them realize that they've given up all that is important in life with their loves, uh, their, their love lives and for everything like that. And to just have this moment where they realize, oh my, my priorities weren't straight. I kind of would have liked that. Obviously it's not as dark of a movie when you go that way, route, but yeah. um, uh, I, I, I like the idea of the lessons learned route, but I, I do like Brian's there too. What about you, Greg? I really like Brian's idea. I was, I'm a huge magic trick fan and I, I watch like, David Blaine, all that type of stuff, have been to magic shows. Well, I think thinking about it, if I were to change one thing, I'd add a few more scenes with Sarah and potentially even Julia at the beginning, just like emphasizing um, the love that the two characters had that they end up losing, because I think a big part of the film is about love and it's really never mentioned and how powerful it is and how it can really, like... If you take that away from yourself, it's going to be very detrimental if you if you look away from like the the loving things you have in your life. I think they bring it back a little bit with like the daughter and he really cares about his daughter, but just 
I know there's no room for cheese in the movie, but maybe highlight just the love a little bit more and make it seem like it's a little bit more valuable of something that they lost. Yeah, I you know, and I think there's genuine warmth to be had. This is not a very warm movie. No. And in fact, I think that's one of the things I responded negatively to initially. Like I left being like, this is just kind of this this whole movie is kind of cold. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So yeah, that's a good point. So, uh, what's your best quote of the movie, Greg? Um, my best quote goes back to that scene you had mentioned with the nephew, that whole little montage, and it's actually on the stairs. He's showing the nephew some magic tricks, and he says, my favorite quote, which is, the secret impresses no one, it's the trick that you use it for. That's a good one. And, uh, there, are, there are a number of those profound magic statements in this movie, but that, that's yeah. a good one. What about you, Brian? Uh, mine was a Tesla quote. You're familiar with the phrase, man's reach exceeds his grasp. It's a lie. Man's grasp exceeds his nerve. That's a good one as that, well. That, that's a great one. Uh, for me, I'm going to go with uh, Alfred Borden's character uh, when he simply says, Never show anyone. They'll beg you. They'll flatter you for the secret. But as soon as you give it up, you're absolutely nothing to them. In a way, that's a microcosm for that obsession that he has. That To me, I found Borden's character to be the most interesting part of this movie. And so that line is everything he lives his life by. And so in a movie with loaded lines and seeds planted, this is one of those really big seeds uh, that, you know, it's it's a signal for what's coming. And I just, I like that clever, purposeful dialogue. Although I do want to also say, I did like that, uh, you know, do you have anything to say as they're about to execute him? He says, abracadabra. Yeah, the the parts where Borden whispers, it's like some ASMR or something, but they're just killer lines. They're just him whispering them makes them almost louder than they would be if he was like to yell them. Oh, it's it's really good. Uh, before we hand out our ratings, I want to give you a chance one more time. Do you want to tell people about uh, your app? We will be coming to Pittsburgh this year. We're currently only in Erie, Pennsylvania, but the app is Hippo. That's H-I-P-P-O-H. Um, find your watering hole. So bars and restaurants. You'll get to know not reviews and opinions, but you're going to get to know objective, factual information, what specials are happening, where and when, and what kind of events are going on in your area. So you can find the place that is the best atmosphere for yourself and also get a good deal while you're doing it. So you can see what acts are playing as well, like music acts maybe? Yeah, so like we have a list of all the live music that's going on in Erie right now and things like that. Also... um, like an example of an event that would be highlighted in the app would be like the pickle thing that's going down in Pittsburgh right now and different events, things like that, highlighting specials. And I don't know if you're familiar with the app Waze at all. Yeah. So similar to Waze, how you crowdsource information and you as a user could say, here's a cop here. And then other people would see that cop or you as a user could then upvote or downvote to get that cop removed from the app eventually. If he's no longer there, you could just eventually... uh you know say he's not there he'll eventually get removed it's the same thing with specials so we'll have a baseline of specials and events in the app but then if a bar introduces a new special and it's not online somewhere the users have the ability to then add that special in Mm -hmm. and other users can validate or unvalidate that special well you'll have to do hours of research to see if it works by hitting the uh evening light or the nightlife oh believe me i've been doing that (laughs) (laughs) so it's the moment of truth. On a five-star scale, uh, half-star intervals, what would you rate the prestige, Greg? I'd probably give it a four and a half. It's my favorite director, some of my favorite topics, the magicians, some of my favorite actors, and I can rewatch this movie 
every single time and I, I honestly get joy out of finding the little foreshadowing things, the little seeds that have been planted. Um, I think it has a lot of rewatch value, and it's one of those movies that I want to show my friends and have them be as amazed with it as well. So it's a, one of my all-time favorite movies. Brian, uh, five-star scale, what do you give The Prestige? I'm giving this a solid four. Uh, he's completely right. I think this movie has a lot of rewatch value. Uh, it's an intriguing movie. I think this is something you can watch you know, 10 times and still find something new about it with just the different things that Christopher Nolan is able to pack into a movie. Uh, one things that I, one of the things that I really appreciate about him as a director is how dense his movies are. And I don't mean that as in like stupid. I mean, he can really interweave a tale where nothing is unimportant. Oh yeah. He's quite the quilter. I would say for me, I'm going to go with a four and my respect for this has grown enormously. Coming into this, I did not necessarily have this one real high on my list, and it's for that first take that I'm putting this uh, down to at a four. I, I think it lives in rewatch mm-hmm. land. I oh, think yeah. I think it's I think it's better uh, with more viewings, which is usually a good trademark. But I also think the first pass it is a little bit cold. There's not a lot of warmth in there, and so. Um, it's it's a movie of loss and again obsession and rival. It's it's beyond rivalry. Yeah. Yeah. So I I, I don't know. I it uh, there 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 is a darkness in this movie that uh, I I can't totally put my arms around and go up to the higher values. But four is where I am. Yeah, I think that probably extra point for me was just my personal bias and love for the movie. But I would agree. It's um, being that is a darker and jumpier movie that. If you watch it with someone and they don't catch on to it that first time, they may never give it that rewatch, which is where a lot of the love for the movie has come from for myself. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Before we depart, though, Brian, do you want to help me pick a movie for next time? Yep, I'm all set, man. We've not done an animated movie yet. It's time to do one in an animated feature. So we we got to three movies here. Option number one, Spirited Away. Uh, maybe not as well known, but uh, this is a... During her family's move to the suburbs, a sullen 10-year-old girl wanders into a world uh, ruled by gods, witches, and spirits, where the humans are changed into beasts. Option two, The Emperor's New Groove, from 2000. Emperor Cusco is turned into a llama by his ex-administrator, Yzma, and must now regain the throne to help Pacha and a gentle llama herder. Option three, Shrek, from 2000. A mean lord exiles fairy tale creatures to the swamp of a grumpy ogre who must go on a quest and rescue a princess for the lord in order to get his land back. Oh, Russ, I'm going to go with the Emperor's New Groove on this one. All right. I like it. So, uh, Greg, thank you so much for traveling from out of town, from Erie, PA, down to Pittsburgh, PA. We appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, man. Yeah, no problem. I uh, really appreciate you guys having me on the show. I always wanted to do something like this and it's exciting yeah we hope you had fun uh, if you if you enjoyed it we'd love to have you back someday uh, thank you to all the lords ladies and knights of the retro movie roundtable we invite you to reach out to us we want to hear from you subscribe rate and review to us on itunes spotify stitcher wherever you get your podcast give us a like on facebook uh, email the show at retromovieroundtable at yahoo.com as always thank you for listening be good to each other and watch more movies brian being human is a condition that requires a little anesthesia